and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker. The Riff Raff is a writer's community that champions the work of debut authors and provides guidance, support and services for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. My guest today is Elizabeth McNeil, author of The Doll Factory, which just this weekend went in at number one on the Times bestseller list. Elizabeth is an author and potter based in London. Her debut will be translated into 28 languages. It's a Radio 2 book club pick and a Radio 4 book at bedtime. We chat about perfecting the slang of a time period, using objects to link your characters, and resisting the urge to write within the parameters of genre. When the streets are at their darkest and quietest, a girl settles at a small desk in the cellar of a dollmaker's shop. A bald china head sits in front of her and watches her with a vacant stare. She squeezes red and white watercolours onto an oyster shell, sucks the end of her brush and adjusts the looking glass before her. The candle hisses. The girl narrows her eyes at the blank paper. She adds water and mixes up fleshy colours. The first streak of paint on the page is as sharp as a slap. The paper is thick, cold-pressed and it does not cockle. In the candlelight, the shadows magnify, and the edges of her hair are one with the blackness. She paints on, a single sweep for her chin, white for her cheekbones where the flame catches. She copies her faults faithfully, her widely spaced eyes, the deformed twist of her collarbone. Her sister and mistress are sleeping upstairs, and even the shushing of her paintbrush seems an intrusion, a deafening rally that will wake them. She frowns. She has made her face too small. She meant to fill the page with it, but her head floats above a blank expanse. The paper, on which she spent a week saved wages, is ruined. She should have sketched the outline first, been less hasty to begin. She sits for a few moments with the light and her picture. Her heart skitters. The doll's face watches. She should return to bed before she is discovered. But the girl leans forward without taking her eyes off the mirror and pulls the candle towards her. It is beeswax, not tallow, pilfered from her mistress's secret supply. She dips her fingers into the hot wax and makes a thimble. Then she runs her hand through the flame, seeing how long she can bear the heat, until she hears the downy hairs on her finger sizzle. Hi Elizabeth. Hi. Hello, thank you so much for joining me on the Riff Raff podcast. No, thanks so much for having me on it. Um, I've been such a fan of the podcast and listened to it so much when I was writing. So, it's, yeah, it's really, really cool to be included on it. Oh, that make, that really warms the cockles. It's, it's always so nice to hear that. So thank you very much. Um, but we're here to talk about you and your fantastic debut, The Doll Factory. Um, I, I raced through it. I just told you how much I loved it. I was completely gripped. Um, so can you please start by telling us a little bit about the book? Yeah, so the book, uh, The Dog Factory, is set in 1850s London, and it's about art and obsession and possession and collecting. Um, So at its heart, you've got Iris, and she works in a doll-making shop, and she dreams of being a painter. And then there's Silas, and he's this collector of curiosities who dreams of opening a museum. Um, And then when they meet by chance, he becomes quite obsessed with her. So, yeah, Yeah. I'd say that's the the potted summary. He does become quite obsessed with her. Um, So... That, can you talk a little bit about where the idea came to you? Because there's obviously so much going on. I'd love to hear kind of the first germ of the idea. 
Yeah, cool. So I guess the idea starts in two places. So I actually thought I had two books on my hands. So the first was a book inspired by Elizabeth Siddle, and she was um, she, she she has quite a similar trajectory to Iris in that she was working in a bonnet making shop in Cranbourne Alley where Iris is a is a painter, um, and then she was spotted by the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, um, and then she kind of found herself being sort of thrown into this different Bohemian life where she modelled for like the painting Ophelia, and she fell in love with Rossetti and became his wife. So yeah, I was I was really interested in her and how that would have felt for her in you know a woman in 1850s London, and I wanted to do something with it, but um, I couldn't get past the idea I was writing sort of fictionalised biography, and I felt like it needed something different or some edge. Um, and then the second idea, um, which I kind of thought about more recently, was about a collector because there's this incredibly weird um, curiosity shop in Hackney. Um, called Victor Wynne's Museum of Curiosities. And I found it totally by chance. And there's things like a taxidermy lion and conjoined lamb and like a human skeleton under a table and like pufferfish skeletons. And I just thought, you know, that's so weird. Um, But it's so interesting that a mind could kind of collect and curate and display that kind of thing. So I I sort of had then this other collector in my mind um, to write a book about him, but then I suddenly realised they were kind of one book um, and they kind of worked perfectly in mid-Victorian London. So I could could sort of move away from the plot plot constraints of being faithful to Elizabeth Siddle by having Iris, who has a similar kind of early trajectory as her, and then I could have the collection of curiosities and it could touch on like the themes of display and sort of objectification and yeah that's I suppose that's sort of a uh, I'll say that again I suppose that's a slightly like rambling way of explaining how it came to me yeah cool so how long ago was that when you first kind of got that your hands on the book and saw that shop um so that so I saw the shop about a year before I started writing it so it didn't take it, it it took about a year until I kind of put the two ideas together but um that was about two years ago so I wrote it relatively quickly um I as soon as I had that idea and I had every chapter mapped out in a slightly OCD uh, spreadsheet I just kind of just had to get it out I just really wanted to tell that story well so it only, so it only took you two years to write it uh six months six, um, oh my god so, I know but but I mean it, it took me six months for a rough first draft um and I think everyone works differently because, as I say, I'd had the ideas and the themes kind of percolating for such a long time. And when I started writing, I had that incredibly detailed spreadsheet. So it was where, you know, each scene was mapped out. So it was more of a... So the writing kind of, that was less of the really prolonged thinking. And also I'd written, I'd written before, so it was definitely far from, far from overnight. I've been writing for 10 years. So. Yeah, what, what did you, sorry, the line went a bit funny. What did you say you've written before? Uh, so I've written, I've just written, I wrote two novels before it, um, which were which were turned down by, by publishers very justifiably. Um, so it's sort of, it, it feels strange when people ask me how long the doll factory took to write. It sort of feels almost artificial to say six months because there was this huge decade behind it of, of failed writing and sitting at my desk at five in the morning and trying to, you know, write something decent. Yeah, I saw that tweet where um, you said about waking up for a decade at 5am in the morning and how it was all worth it and yeah it's an incredibly impressive discipline so it was obviously all culminating in this book and all of the stuff that you all of the themes that you wanted to cover just came together and then it was the right time for you to write it 
Yeah, I think that's right. And also, I think I learned a lot from those books. So, uh, yeah, it's sort of, I, I heard Mark Haddon talk about writing and how he'd had failed novels before his first one. I don't even think it's in the failed novels, really. I think it's in this kind of, a, almost like an apprenticeship. But he said it was kind of like he'd been in the engine room tinkering away and he'd worked out how plot worked and how character worked and pace. And that's exactly how I feel about mine. I mean, I don't feel that they're kind of these um, undiscovered masterpieces I've got sitting in my drawer. They're, they're, they're very naive and badly put together pieces of work that, that I, I wrote at a time when I was young and I was learning and I'm very glad they're not out there and that The Door Factory is my first first book. Yeah and that, and that I suppose that you can look at that as your education really into, into writing yeah and the result with The Door Factory is spectacular so you should be very pleased and worth all of that that decade of of toiling. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm a super nerd so I really want to hear about more about this spreadsheet Yes. Yeah. Talk me through it. Is it colour coded? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's even got conditional formatting. Oh my it's, goodness. How yeah. sexy. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, I, I, I did actually show it to one of my friends because I did the creative writing MA at UEA and I showed it to her and she took one look at it and slammed my laptop shut. She was like, never show me that again. So it, it is, it, I mean, for some people, what I find interesting is how different people write. So for some people that would feel incredibly stifling um, and they feel that they had no room for kind of discovering for themselves how the story unfurls. But for me, I've, I, I, sort of, I felt like I needed to know everything that happened. And yeah, so it's got columns like who's in which chapter and how many words should the chapter have? And, you know, what does the chapter do? Um, as in what, what, what's the arc and what do you know at the end of the chapter that you don't know at the beginning? Yeah. So, yeah, I say it's, it's detailed. <laughs> I absolutely love that kind of stuff because I think that it's then, you know, you, so you, you kind of just know what you're what you're attempting to do. It doesn't mean that you haven't got time within that scene to play with everything else and see where it takes you. But as long as you know what your objective is, I, I like planning. I've got I've got my book completely mapped out in in like a nerdy format format. But I love it. I think it, but everyone's different. Everyone's different. And as you I changed a lot. So if if I got to a particular chapter and I thought actually that's coming too soon, or we actually need more of this, and I very much played around with it, and, and lots of ideas occurred to me as I as I went as well, which I then included. Absolutely, so. and I think that, that I mean that planning you can see in how tight it is, how much happens, how many plot, you know, every there's no wasted, there's nothing wasted. There's always something exciting happen, which drives it forward. So it, mean, it means it's, it's an incredibly compelling read. I was super compelled. Didn't want to talk to anyone for a few days. I was like, nope, read myself out <laughs> um, So the book is a lot of things. Um, there's, you know, a love story. There's kind of a bit of a family saga. There's a coming of age in certain ways for Iris. And it's also, as you said, a dark tale of obsession, but with sort of thriller elements. There's um, a lot, of, a lot going on. So um, can you yeah. talk a little about tackling all the moving parts of the book? Obviously, you had the spreadsheet, but um, and you plotted it out before you wrote. But how did you manage to keep things so? Um, how how did you manage? How did you manage it when you had so many balls in the air? Oh, um, I don't know. I think I think there, there was a a fair bit of trial and error. But but, but I read a book, um, Perfume by Patrick Suskind which I found incredibly liberating from a creative point of view because he plays with so many different genres. So um, I don't know if you've... I'll, I'll explain briefly what, what Perfume is. So it's set in um, 18th century Paris and it's about this... Uh, it, it's, it's an unredeemed psychopath 
called Jean-Baptiste Grenouille, who, and it's all about scent, um, and he becomes a perfumer, and then he is attracted by this wondrous scent of a young woman, and he kills her. Um, so, it's, so it's incredibly dark, um, and it definitely doesn't have the, I don't think, I, I wanted to have more moments of joy spliced through my novel, but what, what it is, and what it, one of its many triumphs is that it's such a melding of genres. So it's horror, love, thriller, historical, folklore. Um, it's it's just, it, and it touches on sort of romanticism and the sublime. And when I read that, I thought that my book didn't actually have to kind of fit into any sort of genre. It could be, it could be many things, I suppose. So I guess in so, so in some ways it, it is lots of different things, but in other ways it is quite a simple trajectory in that Iris has an ambition and Silas has an ambition and one of their ambitions encroaches on the other. So in that way, I suppose that the, the narrative arc is quite straightforward, even if there are kind of lots of themes. And yeah, I, I think a lot of the time with, writing before I'd kind of got into my head that I had to be writing within this these set parameters and I had to be writing um a thriller or I had to be writing you know literary fiction or and I thought um this was my chance to write the novel I wanted to read um and when I finished it I actually wondered you know is 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 it too many things um and I wasn't sure if I'd just written the novel I wanted to read and my reading interests were um unusual but no I was I was incredibly excited when it when it was then picked up by publishers so what were what was was, were your first couple of books um other were they sort of more one genre or another or they were actually children's fiction so they were quite different because I I wrote them when I was quite young so I wrote them when I was 23 and 25 and I think I was quite insecure and I thought you know what why would anyone want to buy something I write when you know all of the heroes I've got you know Hilary Mantel or you know Sarah Waters and I thought what do I all I can all I've got really is that I'm closer to being a child than many writers are so I'll write for children but actually I think that was quite it was quite a naive um it, it was very naive because I ended up just writing kind of slightly simplified versions of the novels which I enjoy which is definitely and children's fiction is so complex and interesting and I just kind of I, I definitely didn't, yeah, my, my, my novels weren't, weren't there because, yeah, it, was, it, it just wasn't what, what I read um, and I didn't know enough about them, I suppose. There's, um, there's, I mean, so many authors that I speak to say that they've written the book that they wanted to read and, um, yes. and, and that's wonderful, isn't it? And, and, and a book, books don't need to be one thing. When they're more than one thing, they're provoking lots of different reactions and different emotions in a reader and appealing to different parts of you know a part of them is is what's exciting about a book yeah yeah um and and not having I suppose not having a fixed reader in mind as well so I wasn't kind of writing for you know a 25 year old woman although hopefully there is something for a 25 year old woman in it um or 50 year old man or you know but just kind of not trying to fixate too much on the market or a potential reader or something because I think I think that can all come later and that can be done by a publisher I just think it's kind of it was exciting to just write the book I wanted to write yeah good for you good for you um so looking at the book's love story between Iris and Louis which I was on board with from the very start um so even though it's it's you know 
um, a historical book. The conflict that arises between them is quite a modern take on love and issues and conflicts that arise now, I think. Sort of questioning whether marriage is outdated and love as something comfortable rather than the kind of infatuation we're conditioned to think amounts to real love in poetry and music and books and stuff. And um, this, this is a theme in that dynamic, but also with, this is a theme in that dynamic with Iris and Louis, but also with Silas, that he builds his obsession with people to the point that when they act like humans, he's shocked and outraged at their imperfections. And I just, I just wonder if you could talk a little about your discussion of love in the book. Yeah, so, so I wanted to uh, write out lots of sort of contrasts and opposites in the book. And one of those things, as you said, was, was love, where you can have romantic love and obsessive love and sisterly love. Mm. And what all of those different things look to and amount to and the impact that they can have. Um, so, yeah, I, I suppose in some ways there is, there is, a, there is a modern edge to it in that I think all historical fiction kind of is more about the time in which it's written than the time in which it's set. But um, I felt that those um, those ideal loves would only have been amplified in the Victorian era. I know we had sort of Disney in the 90s, but they had kind of two-week courtships. And um, and so I, I just found I found that quite interesting to explore in, in, in the context of that era where you know and lots of literature there like Tessa the d'Urbervilles and you know and Vanity Fair with Becky Sharp and and Rawdon and they're kind of falling out of love with each other so it was it was very much there um and that augmented by the themes of the pre-Raphaelites where they've got these kind of scenes of real ideal idealized love and medieval love and what that would have felt like for say Elizabeth Siddle as a young woman falling in love with Rossetti to be painted into all of these scenes of idealized love and whether that might make her feel fragile and so many of them touching on very fleeting love like Dante glimpsing Beatrix and then falling in love with her forever and you know comparing that to what does what does love feel like when that's passed and maybe when your your lover or your husband is picking up with a new model and you know, so I I just felt that that kind of love kind of, yeah, as I say, it would be more amplified in the Victorian era and it was an interesting time to explore it. Yeah, it was, I, I like reading those bits. Um, so Silas, so let's move to Silas. Silas is, um, a, you know, a deeply obsessed, delusional character. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that, to start, that kind of, it, it very slowly creeps in the fact that he's delusional and and um and it's yeah there's there are I want like there's so many tiny intricate details and tidbits and insights into why he is the way he is and his history and how he justifies things to himself and the narrative that he applies to to people and to Iris. Um, can you talk a little bit about your work on Silas? Um, how did you find the experience of writing him? Um. I, I think slightly frighteningly, he was my favourite character to write. Um, his his scenes his scenes were were a lot more straightforward than Iris because I think he as a character is he's got he does have layers and complexities and delusions, but at the same time he is that that's still a straightforward character to write where he sees himself in a very different way from how the world sees that, and I really enjoyed kind of exploiting that gap where, you know, it's, it's close, 
third person point of view, but you can see from people's responses that he is not a reliable judge of himself. And I found that quite fun to do, as well as the fact that the way he sees the world, um, he sees it, um, there's a lot of sort of metaphors and similes around sort of bones and bodies and decay. And getting into a head like that was was kind of interesting and thinking how he'd see, you know, even something like a tree or, or the assembly of the Great Exhibition where um, you've got the assembly of the Great Exhibition um, in part one, but you see it from each of the characters' perspectives and you see what that says about the characters. Um, so, so yeah, I did, I, I kind of, yeah, worry, I, I worried for myself and how much I enjoyed getting into the head of this total psychopath, but it was, it was kind of, <laughs> so. Um, so in terms of your, the work that you did on the character development, um, yeah. were you as sort of um, organised with your character development sort of background work and stuff like that as you were with your plotting? Um, I was actually, which um, my, my, one of my tutors at UEA, uh, Philip Langerskov, he sent me this amazing Q&A for your characters, which contains 40 questions. Um, and... Uh, it, it, it sort of, you know, starts off sort of like, what's your name? And then it's sort of saying, what do you dream about? And it, it goes into real detail with the characters. So I kind of filled out this questionnaire for my four main characters. And it really helped me to understand them and understand how they saw themselves and how other characters saw them and how then I wanted the reader to see them. So, yeah, it was it was it was an interesting exercise. It felt kind of it felt kind of mad, you know, that. I'm filling out a questionnaire for these imaginary people in my head, so, yeah. How long did that process take? Was it something that, as you were answering those questions, you were figuring those things out about your characters? Or did you uh, already know? I, I think it was a bit of both. Like, you know, sometimes when you just write and ideas occur to you that you didn't know that you had, but it sort of, it, it kind of makes sense. So they didn't take me that long. They took maybe a day each or something like that, or maybe, maybe even a, a little bit less, but... Yeah, I found it a really good um, kind of grounding thing to do before beginning. Yeah, it sounds like um, such a such a great idea. I've done similar stuff, but I, is that list widely available, or is that something that you have to do the old UEA course for? <laughs> I can pop up my website or something. Oh, amazing! I can even give it to you guys. I would, yeah, that would be incredible. I would, I, I know that I'd find it valuable, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners would find it incredibly valuable too. Because it's, I mean, you when you hold the idea of your characters in your head mm. you know putting it you you assume that you know everything about them really but when you putting it putting it down on paper like that must just really can sort of make things a lot clearer yeah yeah and then you can decide what you want to reveal and what you want to hold back um and it kind of it, it helped me because I guess the whole point of the spreadsheet and these character questionnaires is that it was kind of helping to remove the scaffolding before I'd begun in a way rather than writing a book where you've got all of this very clear character scaffolding in place which you can then remove. I mean, I did do a lot of removing and scaffolding, but I think that it, it helped at the beginning to work out what it was I wanted them to be like and everything. And, and, and the characters didn't didn't always work. Um, Silas and Albie were the most straightforward, but Iris Iris and her sister Rose, they, they went through a lot of drafts. Mm. I, I mean, I love, the, I love the, I mentioned to you earlier, I love the character of Albie. Um, you know the I like you know the one tooth and everything and um at first glance you know he does he may appear to be kind of not the most central of the three protagonists that you kind of follow through the book um but his role is so intricately woven into the entire story um when did Albie appear to you 
And can you talk a little bit about figuring his trajectory over the course of the book? Yeah, um, so I'll be actually, he, he, he wasn't there at the beginning. Um, and it was my class, my workshop class at UEA who said that Albie needed to be a character because in, in the opening scene, um, Albie turns up with kind of a collected specimen for Silas. And then in, in that initial, the first 5,000 words which I shared, he kind of, they were like, so what happens with Albie? And I was like, oh, no, no, he just gives the specimen and goes away. That's his, that's his role. He's just sort of there, that simple function. And they were like, no, we need, we need Albie. We need more of him. And when they said that, it kind of, the, the, the sort of struggles I've been having with Iris and Silas and the link between them, because they, they meet so fleetingly and Iris is unaware of him for the majority of the novel, I suddenly realised that it did actually need a thread. Um, so I'm glad you said woven, because I do associate Albie with kind of thread and sewing, because he himself is a seamstress, so he gives the, the doll, the he, he sews the clothes for the dolls for Iris, and then he gives Silas a specimen. So yeah, he's kind of the, the metaphorical thread linking them. And I also felt that I needed a character um, who saw Silas for what he was, because Silas is so deluded in the way that he sees himself that I wanted to have a kind of clear-headed character who would who would kind of expose Silas and add more threat to him, I suppose. Um, and yeah, and uh, Albie was just so much fun to write because his, his chapters are quite short and they, he doesn't have that much introspection. He doesn't really have any backstory. He doesn't reflect that much, but so much of him is about action and forward momentum. So it was, they, they were just really fun to write because, you know, he'd just be sort of springing here and there and, you know, it would be all, in the present and there's a scene where I kind of reflected on why he only thought in the present because he didn't want to think about his own situation and so yeah it was I became very very attached to to young Albie. Me too, me too, I, I really loved him and um, but so, so, those, so adding when you when, once you knew that you wanted to add him in and that he would have that kind of role of the forward projection and everything like that how did you find the process of weaving him in? Was it was it relatively straightforward? Oh well, that was actually at the very beginning. So I I only I only shared the first five thousand words which I'd already written. Um, and at that stage, I mean, it was it was a very different novel anyway. Um, and I think I actually had a third character set fifty years in the future who was kind of connected to Iris and Silas, and 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 that would have not worked. So it was it's just one of the great things about collaboration with writing, where you know other other people's perspectives can help influence it and change your way of thinking at such a critical stage so I was I was so grateful to have done the course and to have a group of readers and other writers back in London who where, where we share work with each other yeah and, and well it's a, it's a wonderful thing isn't it to be able to talk about writing in the detail that we get to when you speak with other writers it's um it's like good, yeah. good for the soul good for the writing soul I think <laughs> yeah. Um, so one theme, one of the many themes that runs throughout the book is each of the characters' obsession of varying degrees with being recognised for their talents. Yeah. Um, so the book is set at a pivotal time for the artists. Um, some critics and journalists are panning their work at the time and it's unclear whether they're going to become the masters that they were later regarded as. Obviously, yeah, so I... Pardon? Including Dickens, who yeah. tracked them. <laughs> I love that little, the fact that Dickens is in there. It's a, it's a good, good addition. Um, and, you know, Silas is obviously obsessed with, with getting recognition for his taxidermy. And Iris obviously wants to be appreciated for her painting talent. 
Um, so could you talk a little about the role of the pursuit of recognition in your book? Because it's obviously something very familiar to writers that are aspiring after something. Is there any of your, is there an element of your own desires as a writer and artist in there? Oh, definitely. Um, and I think Iris in particular, she, her trajectory, as I say, it's like Lizzie Siddle's, but there were also bits of my own um in my own in there because as I, as I said I've been writing for quite a long time and I'd been sitting um in a corporate job I didn't like um sort of sobbing into my spreadsheets and just kind of wishing that I could make it as a writer and wishing that I can be accepted by that establishment um and having knockbacks from there and wondering if it would ever happen um and just then they go to UEA and being surrounded by other writers and the absolute exhilaration of that kind of other people sort of saying that that they loved writing too and they loved reading the sort of books I I read and it was it was just an incredibly exciting time where I just felt so I felt so on the brink of something but I also didn't know if I would ever get there at the same time so it was it was kind of terrifying too um so yeah a lot of a lot of my ambition is there and it and it felt like the 1850s was the the right decade to set it in because that was as you say it was the point where the the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood kind of tipped towards recognition um with particularly by John Ruskin as I I, I include his review word for word um and also the great exhibition so that for me was a great symbol of London's ambition um where it wants to be put on the map it was a, it was the an, an enormous museum of 25 acres in the middle of Hyde Park and I just thought you know everything that that said about wanting to be taken seriously as this sort of industrial and cultural I don't know just but it's, it's, I guess a just a center of cultural and industrial success um and then through that you've got all of the different levels in Victorian society and I think that it would have been a much more stratified society than we've well it, it was a much more stratified society than we've got now with where the gulf between the rich and the poor was so great and I just thought you know everyone's trying to haul themselves up um, and you see it in all of the the literature of the times you know where the women are often looking for husbands because that was their way of pulling themselves up um, because they didn't have the access to education and professions that the that men had and so I just yeah I, I, I was quite inspired by that and definitely put my own kind of yearnings and dreams into into those characters too it's, it's yeah very well done very well done and, the, and that obviously another theme in terms of kind of like pulling yourself up and a lot of and um you know society and how you know the haves and the have-nots and that we still obviously have now um, so the, the theme of power is obviously massive in the book, and as well as physical power, there's um, you, you write about power over other people's potential and the power of obligation, power dynamics associated with the various strata of society, who listens to who, who's completely ignored. Um, so yeah, can you talk a little about the many facets of power that you've got in the book? Uh, so yes, so power was incredibly important to me when I was writing particularly feminine power I think uh, because 1850s London was uh, 1850s Britain was of course incredibly misogynistic um, where women didn't have a real voice then um, and the and Iris at the beginning kind of doesn't doesn't really believe that she has the capacity to transcend the situation that she's in and 
there are constant examples of people kind of exerting power over her, both both as a woman and also as her sort of lowered status as a shop girl. So she's bullied by um, the owner of the shop, um, and even even her sister tries to kind of, who, who who is ultimately a sympathetic figure does try to restrain her and keep her in her place, um, mainly due to jealousy and her own situation but Iris has constantly kind of been pulled in lots of different directions and for me it was the moment for for me the moment of her power well of course there are further examples of where her power fails and she is in a necessarily weaker position because it would have been um, unnatural really not to have done that but the, the point where she steps away from the doll shop and she becomes the, 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 uh, she becomes a painter in her own right and she swaps painting lessons for becoming a model and that to me was just such a moment of triumph for her where she decided to shun those voices that were trying to hold her back from achieving something that she wanted and that it was something that she would do and something that she would risk and even if that sort of put her in a position of dependence for me it was still a real position of power that she would do that. Yeah, and to and you know, like sort of alienate herself from her family because in, in pursuit of her ambitions, which and when you spoke earlier about um, moments of joy within the book, that was a moment that really like made me feel joy reading it. So yeah. <laughs> um. So as we sort of touched on earlier, a lot of the characters in the book were based based on real people. Um, and although those people aren't entirely central to the story, and you don't the main characters of the doll factory aren't real people they're kind of based around that group um they're an, these the real people are an incredibly interesting part of the book um and a lot of writers wish to write fiction about real people um so how did you approach representing these real people in the doll factory and how and can you offer any advice to people that are um hoping to base their characters on real people got to use the same expression 15 times then <laughs> All the time. Um, yes, so as I mentioned at the beginning, I thought of writing the entire novel as a fictionalised account of Lizzie Siddle um, and Rossetti, but I I personally struggled with that. I mean, I love reading fictionalised novels, like The Age of Light about Lee Miller and Wolf Hall, um, about Cromwell, and, you know, I, I really enjoy reading them, but I actually found that when I sat down to try and write a novel like that, I actually found it quite creatively stunting. So on the one hand, you've got you, you've got to stick to these very set parameters, and on the other hand, you've got this creative freedom where it almost felt like, to me as a writer, it felt intrusive, but only because I think I'd read so much about these characters, and that doesn't mean. And, and it's strange because to, when I read these these kinds of novels, I don't find it intrusive at all. But for me as a writer, it just all of a sudden it just felt like. Um, I almost wanted a lot fewer parameters or a lot more parameters. So I guess that's either a totally fictional novel with fictional people or it's a biography. Um, and then when I, when, I, when I had the idea for creating a, a fictional character at the heart of it, I really, really enjoyed ex exploring the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. And I really enjoyed giving those characters the cameo roles and also using this, the kind of the structure of the pre-Raphaelites and all of their aims and their ideals and the, the real reviews and their real positions and um, all, all lots, of, lots of the things that they say in their conversations, they said in their letters. Um, and I really poured over their their journals and their diaries um, 
and I found that they kind of sprung onto sprung onto the page in a way that I hadn't expected, just because they were so witty and vivacious. Um, but I didn't enter any of their perspectives, and I found that I found that much easier, where they could just be observed by another character. A bit like when I'm doing my own research, I almost felt like an observer trying to work out what they were like. Um, so that was the balance which worked for me, but. Um, as I say, I, I hope people keep writing these novels about real people because I really love writing them. Um, I guess my advice would just be that you've got to do your research. I know it's a very obvious thing, but people expect it. If, if re research, re research is always so important. I guess you're you're portraying a real figure who might you know, who, who who often people are very attached to already. So I would have thought, you know, writing about Lee Miller, she'll have her descendants and she'll have her real fans and it must it must be quite a difficult thing to kind of write about that person and enter their head and oh Whitney Shara does it so incredibly um but have you, have you read Swan Song by Kelly Greenberg Jeffcott I haven't actually um, if, if you if you like if you enjoy that style of book you have to read that everyone should read that book it's incredible it's kind of told it's called Swan Song and it's told from the point of view of kind of Truman Capote, but also the kind of the women that were in his social circle, and it's um, delicious. But I'm, you know, I've spoken to Kelly, and she spoke about having a kind of um, obligation to both Truman Capote, but also these women, and like, and how, and like how that was involved in her writing process, how the kind of obligation that she felt there. So interesting. It adds like a whole another layer to what you're trying to portray. So it yeah, makes it a lot, a lot more complicated. Interesting. Uh, I'm interested to know whether the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood had pet wombats. They did. <laughs> so really, he had a pet, pet wombat, and it was called Tops, which he named after his friend William Morris because that was his nickname. Um, and it used to sleep um, at the middle in the middle of their table, their dining table, when he had friends over in the little silver dish. Well, it was probably quite a big silver dish because wombats are not small. But unfortunately, the wombat was, was quite a sickly wombat. Um, and it died. Um, and some people say it died because it ate his cigars, but that might be a rumour. But there is a wombat in my novel, Lancelot, who, who died because of eating cigars. So I couldn't resist including that. But, but then he had, a, he had his wombat stuffed and placed in his hall, which was, you know, a very Victorian thing, I think. But really? yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, I'm, 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 I'm glad that was actually something that they had. I'd like, you know, I'd like a pet wombat. Um, so, the way that you describe your characters and the London of the day, the spaces they inhabit, as well as kind of the physical descriptions, um, you masterfully invoke the reader's senses, the sort of smells of things, the textures. And um, I suppose this was made easier by having your central characters be artists who notice the smallest details, and some of the, lo the loveliest passages in the book are when you see the world through Iris's eyes as a painter. Um, but I wondered, and obviously you're an artist yourself, um, and I wondered at what sort of stage of the writing process that intricate detail trickled into the text. Um, I think it was right from the beginning. If anything, I think I had to strip it back um, in later drafts, um, just because I, I, I found that it was through the objects that I was able to understand characters and what what mattered to them and what what they valued and what they'd have noticed um because Silas and Iris um and Albie would all notice very different things and they would attribute different values to them so for, for me the objects were a way of getting to know them um and also it was such an important theme of the novel with with Silas as a collector and 
the Great Exhibition being this sort of very legitimate display of collecting, um, that that yeah, that the, the objects, all of them, kind of had to play an important part, and and also the the paintings of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood themselves, those clutter-filled canvases, where there were so many of the objects in there have a very symbolic importance, like in Awakening Conscience by Holman Hunt, you've got the mouse, which is escaping from the grip of the cat, just as the the, the woman sort of has that moment of awakening and realising that she wants a different life. So, yeah, for, for me, the, the objects were far more than just objects. They were symbols and they were ways of getting to know the characters themselves. Yeah, I, I think it was Alex Michaelides, the author of The Silent Patient. He said to me in the podcast that he chose a prop for every scene, like some kind of prop that was sort of central to it. Was that, was that a technique that you applied or...? Um, I don't think I thought of it in those exact terms, but I did think of objects linking the characters quite a lot. Um, because as I mentioned, Iris and Silas have quite different perceptions. Well, Silas has a strong perception of Iris, but she doesn't of him. So I felt that their accounts needed to be linked in small ways, like objects or sort of similar things that they're, they're doing. So there's, there's one scene where Silas kind of imagines Iris's response to a lion's skull that he's got in his shop. Um, and then in the chapter which follows it, Millet is painting a skull and you see Iris's response to it. Um, and it's very different from the one that Silas imagines for her. Um, so I, I suppose that that, that that prop would have carried a greater significance than some of the other things in Louis' studio, which I might mention in passing, like, I don't know, blown eggs or peacock feathers or, you know, chain mail um, or something like that. So, yeah, I, I, I didn't think of it in such a direct way, but I definitely brought more to the foreground than others. Yeah. Um, and you also use wonderful phrases and expressions of the day, you know. Were these, were these already in your repertoire or did you conduct research, research in terms of phrases? <laughs> Um, they, they 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 came out of my research. Um, the, the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood they they used a lot of slang. So a lot of the things that they say, um, I might have picked that up from a letter or something like that. Um, it's also Henry Mayhew. He wrote the, the he he wrote uh, accounts of the London poor, and he uses a lot of slang in it and a lot of interesting expressions. And he's got he's got kind of wacky syntax from time time to time. So I could. I picked up a lot from that, and whenever whenever I came across an interesting phrase, um, then I'd write it down in my just just in my iPhone notes, and I'd go through them. And often, you know, I'd I'd find an interesting object, like I don't know, a snuff box, and then I'd think, how can you make it more interesting? You know, how can you use it as a simile? Like I don't know, a room's as small as a snuff box, um, and then you're it's it's doing more heavy lifting, I suppose, and that. You're, you're you're seeing the entire room through the eyes of how a Victorian person might see it. Yeah, that, that, that's that's such an interesting way, that's such an in-depth way of thinking about the the similes and the metaphors and stuff that you used. And now that you say it, like they're they're some of the most delicious parts of the text. So was was that were they bits that you dropped in as you went through, or were the things that you or it, so you you would just look at your notes of things that you kind of wanted to mention objects of the time words of the time and then and then work out how to use them in a way that would show how people think 
Yeah, yeah, and, and some of it I remembered, um, and other times, if, if, if it wasn't my notes, the chances are it entered a later draft rather than with something which I was deliberately trying to get in. And, and the difficulty, of course, was being selective because, you know, the, there's, there's always the, the urge and the temptation to, to cram it full with too much research and then to impede the plot um, or, to, yeah, or, or to just impede clarity. So it was it was always kind of a, a tussle between is this actually enhancing a scene or is it just making it more opaque? Yeah, yeah, I love those bits. I, I, yeah, really delicious, delicious writing. Um, so speaking of artists, so as, as well as being a very talented writer, you're also a talented potter. Potter? Is that the right yes. expression? <laughs> I mean, I could, I could be a ceramicist, but I think that sounds a bit pretentious, so I prefer potter. Okay. Because um, I have a little jewellery dish that um, I believe is your handiwork that um, I was given by Camilla. Yeah, I'll show on it. I keep my rings in it. Oh, <laughs> you. Um, so, um, can you talk a little bit about the role of both writing and being a potter in your life, and how the two complement each other? And do you think you could do one without the other? Oh, that, that is a difficult question. At least you didn't ask me to kill one of them. I, I would kill pottery, actually, having said that. Um, <laughs> sure, but, don't um, it. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's one of those things where lots, in some ways they're very similar. So they're both, they're both creative, they're both solitary, they're both where you know, I, I work alone in them for the, for the majority of the time. But it's their differences which makes them work for me because, of course, one's incredibly mental and the other's incredibly physical. Um, with writing, I, I, you know, writing a hundred thousand word novel is a mammoth exercise. And there are, you know, with, with the second novel, I've thrown out weeks and months worth of work. And, you know, sometimes you don't feel like you're, you're getting anywhere. But then with pottery, when, when I'm feeling kind of low about that, then I can just go outside and throw 20 mugs. And, you know, I don't need to obsess over them in the same way that I do about writing because they're there, they're mugs. I can drink from them, job done, in, in, in a way. So, yeah, it works really well. As, and in addition to that, um, when, I'm write, when I'm potting even, um, I can kind of think about my writing in a way that I don't when I'm not doing anything or even when I'm writing. Because I think with mechanical work, there's a kind of abstract concentration which comes with it. So I'll stick on an audio book um, and then things will occur to me and I'll often have an untangled um, plot points or character points which I don't think I would have been able to otherwise and actually I don't think I'd have been able to write uh, The Doll Factory in six months had it not been for pottery and I made so many pots in that time and I worked far too hard um, I must have thrown about a thousand pots and because it was all in the run-up to Christmas when I was also writing the book and looking back I at the time I thought like oh my gosh imagine you know I could be spending all this time writing but actually I don't think it was as straightforward as that I think that it meant that I didn't have any dud writing days because the day before I'd have spent the day potting and then I'd be, you know, ready to spring into my novel because I'd been thinking about what I'd be doing for the whole day before. So, yeah, yeah it, it worked really well. That's so cool. Everyone needs to take up pottery is the, is the answer. <laughs> um, yeah, um, so we've been chatting for ages now, so I won't hold you much longer, but... Um, what tips do you have for just in general? Like, what tips do you have for aspiring writers? Obviously, your commitment to learning your craft with, you know, writing, getting up at five a.m. and doing a MA and you know, writing these two novels before the Doll Factory. Yeah, obviously, perseverance is something that you're um, 
particularly adept at, but what other tips do you have for aspiring writers? So in addition to experience, I'd say two other tips. The first is read, read everything. So I, I read so much when I was writing, so much before I was writing, and I, and I learned so much from other writers, you know, how Patricia Highsmith, created that sense of menace in the you know in 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 the ta- the town of mr ripley it's called the town of mr ripley isn't it yeah okay i suddenly got oh my god i've got it wrong um and how hilary mantel builds world um in wolf hall and you know and and how patrick siskind creates that sense of sinister unease in in perfume um and so as i say i learned so much and i found reading other writers very inspiring and the second thing i'd say is collaboration um find find other writers um if you can share your work because collaboration made my book um and the enthusiasm i got from others and also kind of their their early guidance in what i should do um where i should move things and as well as the fact i enjoy reading their work too so it's win-win so yeah i'd say i'd say collaboration and reading as well as of course perseverance Wonderful tips. And can you tell us anything about um, book two? Oh, so book two is incredibly tentative at the moment, but it is set in 19th century London again, um, because I felt like I, I I so enjoyed writing The Doll Factory and throwing in lots of things which interested me, but I kind of felt like I wasn't done with the 19th century, the other things I wanted to explore. So the second book is set 20 years before, because 1830s, that was when um, the... Um, London there were these great cemeteries which were constructed then like Highgate and Tower Hamlets and Brompton Um, so it's about the construction of a cemetery it's about a bit about evolution and fossils and change and at the centre of it there is um, a powerful young woman who starts off working as a maid in a hotel in Lyme Regis so yeah I just need to write the thing now (laughs) Well, I believe in you. Um, The Doyle Factory is a complete triumph and thank you so much for speaking to us today. It's so lovely to hear your insights. Oh, no, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. My absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. How do you fancy working with an author within your genre on your work in progress? It's now a possibility with The Riff Raff. We've got a wonderful roster of more than 30 authors and for you to work with. Um, starting from around 150 quid. So head over to the website, the-riffraff.com to check it out. Cheers.